glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Numbers 13, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent from the wilderness of Paran, all those men uh, were heads of the children of Israel. It gives all the names of them from the 12 tribes. Uh, Included in this group are Joshua and Caleb. How many of you are familiar with Egal, the son of Joseph? Am I familiar with him? Okay. Uh, How about Gaddy, the son of Susie? I didn't think so. Um, these men go down and we haven't got a clue who they are. Have you ever heard a guy named Joshua? How about a guy named Caleb? Now, why does their name abide in respect and regard and these other guys? If I said, ah, yeah, you, you've heard of Paltai, the son of Rephu, right? Like, I'm sure he's in there somewhere. You want to make sure that you don't count in time or eternity live in unbelief, Right? Just live a life of unbelief. All that really counts is what's done by faith. That's all that's going to last. And I believe the fact that we know by heart the names Joshua. I've not met anybody lately that named their son Gadiel. We don't know who they are because they didn't live by faith. And I just want to say that at the onset we are tempted to believe what we see instead of believing what we're told that's a tragic mistake. We need to live by faith. Now let's move down to verse 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and uh, uh, go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the same was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rahab, as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Shisha, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshkel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they bear it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook Eshkel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching other land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, there is the most dangerous word in this text, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? 
Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? They said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. We'll come back to this chapter before we're done and look at the end of the chapter and how they presumed to take on the battle when they wanted to instead of when God said to. Uh, but I, I want to just hone in on this. I believe this. We come to places in our Christian lives. So the children of Israel leaving Egypt under the Passover blood is a picture of salvation. They've crossed through the Red Sea and their crossing through the Red Sea was almost the exact same symbol as our water baptism is. It was a picture of leaving Egypt behind, leaving a life of bondage and slavery behind as they were headed toward the land of Canaan. But they had a dry season. I believe, I mentioned it in Sunday school this morning, and I think it's important for God's people to understand this. You will have dry seasons in your Christian life. There are dry seasons. There are seasons where it's not exciting. There are seasons where God is simply sustaining you, where He's keeping you from falling, He's keeping you from dying, He's keeping you from bondage, but there's not grapes and there's not milk and there's not honey. There's just manna and water and maybe quail. Dry seasons. What happens is we've got to learn to be content. God is proving our faith in Him during that time. We've got to be learning to how to be content with the Lord and His leadership in our lives. Anyway, the wilderness experience, I believe you cannot escape that as a Christian. You're going to have to have a season where you're going to follow the Lord because He's the Lord and He saved you and you're going to have to trust that He's got an abundant Christian life for you. John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. As we study Scripture Canaan land is a picture of the abundant Christian life. The life, uh, as we review the promises made about Canaan, you'll understand we have the same promises as New Testament Christians in a spiritual sense. And so the abundant Christian life is a life of close fellowship with the Lord, a life of victory over sin, not a life that's absent of sin, but life of victory over sin. It's a life of, of true holiness, and there's the fruit that comes from holiness and the fruits of righteousness in our life. And if you're saved, you'll realize that, uh, there, that that is not automatic. God has to lead you into that and God has to give you those things. But the fact of the matter is these people had promises given to them that what we read about in the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 was absolutely unnecessary. They come to a land and they are depressed They are discouraged. They are filled with fear, even anger and frustration. And all of it was for no reason whatsoever. They believed that what what God had told them to do was impossible. God had commanded them to cross the Jordan River, go in, conquer the foe, possess the land, and they said, we are not able. Verse 33, let's read that very, excuse me, 31. It says, but the men that went up with him said, we be not able. That's the title of our message, we be not able. I believe you're going to come to a point in your Christian life where you realize God's expectation of you and the life that he's called you to live as his child. He saved you out of the world through the blood of his precious son, the Passover lamb. You have left the world behind. You're now a child of God. God intends you to live a victorious Christian life. And you, if you're not careful, will come to the point where you say, I am not able. The life God expects me to live. I read in 2 Peter 1, we're going to go there in just a little bit, that I'm to add to my faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness. And you begin to see the image of Jesus Christ and that God intends you to conform to that image in your personal character. And you're going to look at God's expectation of what He wants your life to be and look at what your life is and say, that is not possible if you fall into unbelief. Let me ask you something. Would God call us to be something he does not enable? Of course not. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is able to give someone eternal life? I don't think most people in independent Baptist churches tonight have that concern. But I believe there's a lot of people today that believe that he is not able to give abundant life. They've believed that that is a pipe dream. That's something that preachers talk about to motivate you, but it's actually an impossibility. There are actually people tonight who've been born again. They know they're saved, but they literally do not believe a life of victory is a real 
possibility, even though God promised it. They do not believe a life of virtue is a real living possibility for them, even though God promised it. They don't believe that a a life of vitality, those are the words we're going to focus on here in a few minutes, of bearing fruit and a fullness of joy is truly a possibility. They have come to the Jordan River of their life where an abundant Christian life is just on the other side. They've tasted of the fruits of it just a little bit, but they say what stands between me and the life that God has called me to is too difficult. And it's just an impossibility. And that's the spirit I'm coming to you in tonight. That's the the frame I want us to think about as we consider the life that God has called us to, a life of holiness, a life of, of separation unto Him, a life of devoted service, a life of wholeheartedness that bears tremendous fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the grapes of Eshkel. And there's a time we say, I see that that's real. I believe and see that there is a a life of godliness and a life of holiness and a life of honesty and righteousness. And I can only imagine the joy that would come if I could actually live that life. But I can't. The the opposition is too great. I'm going to tell you something. If you're saved, you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to come to a point where you have to deal with I understand God saved me, but is the life he's called me to live actually his expectation or just a dream he put out there that is a a complete impossibility? What happened is the children of Israel are here to warn us that we can miss that life of rest, resting in God's promises, resting in God's power, resting in his ability. That's all in Jesus Christ. By the way, if you're saved tonight... I'm going to reiterate something. You have everything you need from God, both to get you into heaven and get you through this world, and to do so pleasing to Him. You and I do not have to yield to the the enemies of, of our soul. We have the victory. It's ours. But it is only made a reality when we take God at His word. So let's consider three things tonight about these people that come to the edge of Canaan land By the way, they would make a decision. They would 40 days study the land, make a decision in one night that would determine the next 40 years of their life. It's a pretty serious decision, isn't it? They would make a decision. Here's why it had such an impact. They made an ultimate decision about what they thought about God's word. And what they thought is that God had lied. They ultimately called God a liar. And it cost them rest and joy uh, it didn't cost Joshua and Caleb, but it did cost the rest. So let's consider these things. Number one, as we come into Numbers 13, they've been led to this land of Canaan. Why? Because this was God's will for them for hundreds of years. For over 400 years, God had been preparing them for this day. He had been building this nation. Go, if you would, hold your finger in Numbers 13. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is not something that Moses said, you know what, I'd like to get my people out of Egypt. I hadn't got a clue where we're going, but let's just go. That's not the way it worked. God had foretold to Abraham, and I'll reference it to you in just a moment. He had foretold to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his people, once he had a nation, they would go into a strange land for 400 years. God had prophesied the 430-year bondage of the children of Israel far before it ever happened. He had said it would happen when it's time for Jacob to go down. God said, go down into Egypt, stay there. And for 400 plus years, they lived in Egypt in bondage until God raised up Moses to lead them out. But I want to just review the promise that they had of inheriting Canaan land was not something that was given in their generation. This is a promise that's pushing 500 years old. God had made, you think about this, the promise they were operating on had been around longer than the United States has existed God had been planning something for a long time. They're just, it's just their time to respond to the promises of God. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Part of the Abrahamic covenant is there is a land that I'm going to show you. Go to Genesis 13. We'll kind of rapid fire through some verses here. Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. This is after Abram and Lot separate. Lot is given preference. He goes to Sodom. 
Uh, Abram then is talked to by the Lord, verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Is that a promise? That's a promise. He says, I'm going to give it to you and your seed forever. Verse 16, and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Look, if you would, at Genesis 15. Genesis 15, it's here that God has told him in verse 13, and he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Just pause real quick. Do you believe or do you think that these people were aware of this promise made to Abraham? Oh, yes, they were. When God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, Moses knew who he was talking about and what he was talking about. These are promises that had been handed down through the generation. So now down to Genesis 15, verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. So he's going to define it. From the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, under the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So when the children of Israel said, the Amorites are there and the Canaanites are there. Yeah, God said so 400 plus years ago. He already knew they were there. Did he know how strong they were? Did he know how powerful they were? Did he know they were uh, uh, greater than the children of Israel would be? Of course he knew all that. Now, this surprised the Lord. He had planned this for 500 years. Sometimes we get our thinking caps on backwards, don't we? Do we realize that God is not shocked at the moment we're in in history? He knows the end from the beginning. He already has things planned for this generation. They're already in place. He has blessings available to you young people that are available to you and channeled to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, that will enable you to represent Him well. May I say this? I don't care how wicked and how perverse the culture gets, Christ is able to overcome. And so this season we're living in is no surprise to God. Wicked men in the White House and wicked men in Congress and the whole world consorting together to try to dethrone our Savior. He already prophesied it in His Word. He said it would happen. Evil seducers and uh, will wax worse and worse. Wicked men and evil seducers are going to wax worse and worse. The Antichrist and the spirit uh, of the Antichrist are already active there in the New Testament. None of this is surprising to God. Just like the enemies there are not surprising to God. So let's move forward. Genesis chapter 17. Verses 7 and 8. The Bible says this. By the way, I am preaching as much to the man behind the pulpit tonight as I am anybody else. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. He says, and I will, still speaking to Abram, uh, Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you think the Lord is trying to get settled? I'm going to give you this land and to your family. All right, now to Genesis 26, verse 3. Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. Now we've shifted characters. We've gone from the promise to Abraham, and now God's going to repeat the same promise to Isaac says in verse 1 of Genesis 26, And there was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee, and unto thy seed, I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Now to Genesis chapter 28. Just bear with me here. There's a reason for reading all these verses. Genesis chapter 28. Now we're dealing uh, with Jacob. So we've gone from Abraham. God repeated the promise to give the land to Abraham numerous times. He says, Isaac, I'm telling you the same thing I told your dad. I'm going to give you and your family all these, these lands and these countries. Now we're to Jacob. If anybody didn't deserve the covenant, Jacob did not. 
Jacob the shyster, Jacob the deceiver. But Jacob believed God. And therefore, when you believe God, you get what God promises. You realize God did not enter into covenant with us because we're worthy of it? God enters into covenant because He's worthy. And if we'll take Him at His word, we can enter into covenant with God. Genesis chapter 28, verse 4. Back up just a little bit, verse 3. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Uh, Now, if you would, uh, Genesis uh, 28, verse 13, same chapter. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the, the, the ladder that extended to heaven. I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. Now, Genesis chapter 35, verse 12. Genesis 35, verse 12. Verse 11 says, And God said unto him, still speaking to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. Now to Genesis chapter 50. This is Joseph speaking right before he dies. So, Jacob comes into the land. We have uh, a a long period of time passes between that and Joseph's death. And Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50, beginning verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you. That's what God said in Genesis 15. And bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, when Joseph's dying... He reminds his brethren, God promised us a land and it's not Egypt. He promised us a land in the Canaan and he said, God will surely visit you and keep his word. Verse 25, And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. If you read on into Exodus chapter 12, 13, The Bible says when they departed out of Egypt, they took the bones of Joseph. Meaning, when they left Egypt, they knew God had promised them a land. He said, to thee and to thy seed will I give it. This is the land we read about in Numbers 13. Uh, Go now, if you would, to Exodus chapter 33. The same land we read about that they went and spied is the same land God had promised, and they knew God had promised it. They were well aware God had promised it to them. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying unto thy seed will I give it. Is it pretty clear that God had given them this land? Abraham has told, was told this promise and believed it. Isaac was given this promise, believed it. Jacob was given this promise, believed it. Uh, Joseph was given the same promise and reminded his people as their, as their prince there in Egypt, God has promised to bring you out and give you a land. Moses is raised up just like Joseph was a prince in Egypt. So is Moses. And Moses is raised up not to bring them into Egypt, but to bring them out. And as he's raised up, he is reminded, I've promised this land to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I'm going to give it to you. By the way, in a very literal way, Israel will have their land once and for all, once Jesus Christ is on the throne. The final fulfillment of that promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be finalized and completely fulfilled once Christ is on this earth ruling and reigning. They'll have their land without dispute. They still don't have it without dispute today. They're on it, but they don't have it without dispute. But one day they will, as his earthly people. Nonetheless, having said all of that, we look at these promises, and the nation of Israel knows this, that they've been promised this land. And yet they come to it, and when they come to it, they don't take possession. May I just give the analogy? We have a number of exceeding, as Peter will say, great and precious promises. We are promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We are promised that, uh, that He will give us His strength and His life. That we, Romans 5, verse 9, If we're saved by His death, shall we not much more than be saved by His life? We are told, uh, and it might as well be a promise, in Philippians 4, 13, when Paul says, 
I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. We are told, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. The context of that verse is verse 23. Paul says, I pray that God sanctify both your body and spirit and soul holy. If I'm misquoting that, but it's the idea of Paul was praying for their entire sanctification, spirit, soul, and body and that they would be preserved blameless under the coming of Jesus Christ. And he said, and, uh, uh, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. <laughs> We're told there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above the table. Jeff referenced the verse. But with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That is a promise. Do we have some clear-cut promises? We're told and promised not only life but abundant life. And so then, the question tonight is, are we not promised a land? We have some of the same promises they did. Go now to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Verses 20 through 33. I want to read this. The Lord is communicating to His people what He's going to do for them. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Here's where the promises get more specific. Not only is he going to give them a land, he's going to give them specifics of what that land means to them. What it exactly means to them. What, what is it going to look like in the land? Verse 20 says, Behold, I send an angel, capital A, an angel before thee, to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Now listen how specific this promise is. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee into unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. What's God say he'll do? I will cut them off. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. Uh, The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. I will make make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee and I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Now here are some very specific promises. I'm going to break it down into a few parts. God promised them, number one, uh, vitality. He promises them life. He said He's bringing them, Exodus 3.8, into a land that flowed with milk and honey. He said that He would bless their labor. He says that their, their, their calves will not cast their young. The idea is, I am promising you a, a, a success in, in what you put your hands to labor in. Now what we see here are physical promises, and the application to us is spiritual. God's saying, I will give fruit to your labor. Some read this and say, oh, see, to the Christian, if you follow the Lord, you'll be healthy, your cattle won't be sick. No, those are physical promises to a physical people. We're spiritual people with spiritual promises. Following the Lord and living your life for Him doesn't mean you'll never have health problems or financial difficulties. I tell you what it does mean. When you do the work of the Lord, God will enable you to do it and succeed at doing what He's called you to do. If God calls you, someone says, I just don't think I could, you know, I could fulfill this ministry. If God directs you to do that by Jesus Christ, He'll enable you. The Spirit of God gives spiritual gifting to do spiritual work. You with me? So when I say this, He promises them, uh, vitality. He's promising them life. Not only life from death, not only deliverance from the death of Egypt, but the ability to live an abundant life. Again, the promise that's found in John 10 where the Lord Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more 
abundantly. The Lord Jesus lives today to give you the ability to bear fruit for His namesake, uh, to reproduce and lead other people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, to, to minister His Word, to be actively involved in His service and to be productive. That's the idea, to be productive in the work of God. We are promised spiritual vitality. I'll, I'll show you a text in a minute where all these things are the same promises made to us in the spiritual realm. We are promised uh, that, that He has given to us a, 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 a life eternal and that life is unending and, and unmeasurable. So let me ask you this tonight. What, when it comes to strength, well, this idea of vitality deals with strength and the ability to labor and be fruitful. Where are the Lord Jesus' limitations on strength? And vitality. He has none. He's not limited. And we are promised that as his children. Number two, they're not only promised vitality, they are promised that this land will be a land of virtue. See what he mean here? He says, he promises them in this land, he said, I'm going to take you in here, and these, these idolatrous people, we'll not read it again because we just read it, but these idolatrous people I'm going to cut off so that you're not going to serve their gods, you're not going to compromise with them in sin. He is calling them, the land of Canaan is to be a land of vitality, milk and honey and uh, water flowing and their needs met and strength in, in their bodies and in their, in their labors that are successful and fruitful and productive. He promises them virtue. It's going to be a place not of idolatry, but of genuine, sincere, true worship of God. May I ask you something? Is that possible for us? The unbeliever cannot sincerely worship God. But the believer can be a sincere, wholehearted, virtuous individual. We have been called to glory and virtue. Some say it's just impossible with the with, the, with the, the draw of the flesh, with the pressures of the world, with the cleverness of Satan, no one can live wholeheartedly for God. Not without Christ you can't, but I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The land of Canaan was to be a land of vitality. It was to be a land of virtue, not a land mixed with idolaters, but one that was pure and clean and holy and, and sanctified, pure of that idolatrous way of living. He makes that very clear. Number three... He promises it's a land of victory. He says, he says, I will overthrow your enemies. I'll go before you. I'll cut them off. When you go into the land and you fight them, I'll defeat them. Could you ask for better promises? A land flowing with milk and honey where you're going to have the strength and the ability to labor and produce fruit and be sustained with what you need. A land of victory where those who represent sin and idolatry and compromise be cut off. And a land of close where you'll have close fellowship with God. We know this is not heaven because the enemies are there. This land for the Christian does not represent heaven. In this sense, it represents victory and virtue and vitality. And that is the life of value, is it not? That's what's going to count. Now, God made all these promises to these people. But I got a question. Did they go into Canaan and have victory, virtue, vitality, and value? Well, then God must have lied to them. Didn't he say that's what they had? You see someone today who has a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but their life is not a victorious, virtuous, or a life of vitality. It's not because of a failure of the promises of God. The breakdown is somewhere else. And so then we see their promises. Number two, we see their perception. Go back to Numbers 13. They had great and precious promises. And again, we'll go to Second Peter when we close here in a few minutes uh, to make the connection to the New Testament. Uh, Numbers 13, again, we're going to focus here uh, uh, on, on a few things that we've already read, and I'm not going to reread them for time's sake. But their perception. So they've been promised this land, this good land. Now, God says, select these 12 tribes and send them in. These 12 men, other 12 tribes, send them in. And you know what happened. As they went in, we read it earlier, they come back and they have a report to give. They found the land to be what kind, good or bad? Did they find it to be fruitful? Let me ask you this question. Did they find anything in the land that was different than the way God described it? But did they describe it as though it was different? Bear with me. Had God told them that the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Amorites, and all the other ites were there? Had he told them that they were even giants? I believe they were aware of that if they'd listened. But the fact is, they go in and they act shocked. They said, we found the fruit. There was milk, honey. Here, look at these grapes, pomegranates. It's a wonderful land. It's a beautiful land. It's a great land. But 
Nevertheless, they say, nevertheless, there's a problem. The people be strong that dwell in the land. Got a question. Did God tell you that the Christian life would have enemies? Does the scripture warn of our flesh? Did not Paul say, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But we set out to do what's right, and we act shocked when there's opposition to our right decisions. I decided on Sunday that I'm going to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, and Monday was the worst day of my life. Why are we shocked? God said that our flesh is corrupt. He told us that we have an adversary that's trying to devour us, and yet we act, why is it so hard to serve God? It's not really. We're just saying the enemies are bigger than God's promises. That's what we're saying. Oh, the Christian life is so hard. That's because we're trying to do it in our power instead of on His promises. God will perform what He promised to do. Will He not? And we act shocked that my flesh is revulsed at prayer. Don't be shocked. Just name your flesh a Malachite and go to battle and trust God to give you the victory over that rotten flesh. Of course there's battles. Of course there's opposition. There, nothing of value is gained without some opposition. So these people come into the land and, well, it's a beautiful land. It's a wonderful land. I've tasted of the grapes. are glorious. I'd love to live there, but we just can't. Why? Because the people there are strong. Yeah, God knew about them. He talked about them. He named them by name. And he already promised he'd cut them off. I know, but these are really big people. With me? Their perception first of God's faithfulness was nil. Whatever happened? I'll be honest with you. I'll start to get frustrated at the children of Israel up to the moment I go, Oh, I see me in that crowd. How many of you could count at least 20 specific answered prayers that only God could do, and you could count 20 in the last five years, if you stopped and thought about it, without, without a lot of effort? How many of you could rehearse sometimes that God did something that you had so specifically sought Him for based on the promises in His Word and watched Him move in your life and honor His Word that there would be no doubt. I've had times I've written them down. I go back and rehearse my journal sometimes just to be reminded of how I was seeking God. I was I was in a, in a difficult situation and how He opened the Scriptures and one verse after another gave correction to my steps and gave victory and only God could do it because only God knows the recesses of my heart. And yet when I need the same thing today, you know what I'm prone to do? Oh, this is a big one. Oh, boy, this is a big one. No bigger than the last one. How many know the the Red Sea is big? How many know that splitting it and crossing on dry dry ground takes a miracle? Why aren't they talking about the Red Sea when they're talking about the Canaanites? Why aren't they talking about manna from heaven every day since they left when they said, we're going to starve. And God said, no, you won't. I, I will feed you. We're going to thirst. No, you won't. I'll give you water. Why weren't they talking about what God had done? Because they weren't focused on God. They were focused on the opposition. Now, I want you to hear me, and I plead with you to hear me well tonight. I am well aware of the opposition we face to live the life that God has called us to in 21st century America. There is smut on every corner. There is filth on every device. There is a crowd that wants to steal the hearts and minds of these young people so they can't serve God. There is a, there is a, a, a defiling sense in our culture and a spirit that's evil. It's called the spirit of antichrist. And I understand we live in a very dark world. I get that. But I also get this. When I get focused on that, I get into sin. The pastor, and so do you. If I get focused on the size of the opposition, I begin to doubt what God can do. Been there, done that, and I don't want to live there. What my Lord says to me, what He says to you, is, hey, you don't be focused on that. Amen? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven up until the last days. No, we're told that this is a wicked and a perverse generation that we're living amongst. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 2 that we are supposed to shine as lights in a dark world. He already told us it's going to get darker. Why are we surprised? 
Why are we surprised that the evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse? He already told us that. But do you realize God's will for every one of His children did not change with a wicked time? It's still God's will that we live holy. It's still God's will that we live separated from this rotten world. It's still His will that we be filled with joy and peace. And the glory of God is still to be on our lives no matter all that. But what happens is, well, it's impossible to raise a generation to serve God. I've heard people say, I wouldn't have children right now with the way the world's going. That's not right. What we're saying is the enemy is greater than God. Are we not? It's just not true. It's just not true. So their perception of God's faithfulness, it wasn't there. But the perception of their foes was. Look at verse 33 again. Now let's back up verse 31. But the men that went up with him, with Caleb that is, uh, said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Here's the danger of that statement. Part of it's true. I got a question. Were the children of Israel trained military? These people were. The children of Israel, were they big, tall people, strong, strapping people? No, they're nomads. That's what they were. They were nomads. These are trained, skilled people with walls thicker than this building around their cities. So before we get real hard on them, what they said is true. They be stronger than we. The part they said that wasn't true is we be not able. We say this, young person, the lust you face in your flesh, stronger than you, but it is not stronger than God. The draw of the world on our hearts, it is stronger than us. Listen, the world has us outdone with money. They have us outdone with appeal. If I were trying to compete with the world tonight, we're going to lose hands down because they're strong. Look, they have more people. They have more numbers. They have more expertise in, in persuading minds to do things their way. They have more carrots to wave as a, uh, in front of the horse to get him bribed. and They got all that. They're stronger than we. But to say we be not able is to call God a liar. And so then, but that's, that's what they did. Their perception of their foe, verse 32, and they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of, great, of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which were come of the giants. By the way, that's all true. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So we, they are so great that we are so small. I hear something like this often today among the new evangelical crowd or among this supposed new fundamentalist. There's no such thing as new fundamentals. Fundamentals are fundamentals. They don't change. They're not new. They just are. But you have a new crowd, and what they've determined is they're bringing up an evil report on the abundant Christian life. They're bringing up an evil report on the separated life unto God that's holy and clean and good. And what they've determined is it's not possible. And they sound humble sometimes. They'll say something like this. We're all broken. Well, of course we're all broken. But if you're saved, you've been fixed. We need to be careful what we say. If you heard these men talking, we were grasshoppers. What humble men, what, what proud men to think they were wiser than God. We were as grasshoppers in our own sight. And again, I'll say this. According to that ratio, these men had to be 300 plus feet tall. So their, their perception was skewed majorly. They weren't as grasshoppers. Nonsense. By the way, even grasshoppers do a great deal of destruction if they're in the hand of God. Right? The fact of the matter is, their perception of their foe was skewed through their fears. I found this, unfortunately and sadly, by experience. Fear magnifies all problems. Fear is a magnifying glass that makes all my difficulties larger in my mind than they are in reality. Fear causes me... Fear, by the way, is rooted in unbelief. This kind of fear. Fear that says, I'm worried what's going to happen when God's already promised us victory. And so then... Their perception of God's faithfulness, nil. Their perception of their foes, out of, out of kilter. It was out of proportion. Their, 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 their fears are, are the determination of their perception. Their fear of defeat. Can you imagine this? We've wasted. 
we would have been, that's what they're saying. We, our following and obeying God to this point was a waste. That's what they say in chapter 14. They weep all night. Do you realize there's no need for weeping? They should be rejoicing. We're right on the cusp of what we've been waiting for, what God promised for hundreds of years. We're on the cusp of God doing something mighty, but they could not say that because they didn't believe it. I don't believe it's impossible for God to stir a spiritual awakening in an individual or a family or a church. The only thing that holds Him back is our lack of faith in His Word. That's all. That's the only thing that can tie God's hands is our wretched unbelief. Might I say we're all guilty and may God help us repent of it when it's present. It's a wicked, vile sin. It's what caused the disciples to question Jesus' integrity when they were in the boat and, well, He's upset because we didn't bring bread. No, He's upset because you forgot the miracle that He did last time. (laughs) My point is this tonight. Their perception of God's faithfulness and their perception of their foes through their fear led them to folly. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, they make a number of terrible decisions. They weep all night when they should be rejoicing. They murmur again. They complain. Murmured against Moses and against Aaron, God's appointed leadership. There's a lot of murmuring going on today against God-appointed leadership. I'll just say it. A lot of of murmuring in our culture and in our world. There's a whole generation of so-called independent Baptists. All they can do is rail on the people that trained them, taught them, and pastored them. I'm going to tell you something. If you, if you have a pastor that's a sinner, don't you support him? Don't you help him? It doesn't matter. That's not the way that works. But if someone taught you the word of God and you just don't believe what God said, don't blame the preacher or the parent or the teacher. They did. These folk did. Said, murmured against Moses and against Aaron, against the whole congregation, said, and then would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God, we had died in the wilderness. Are you kidding me? They said, we'd rather be dead than be here facing victory? No, they didn't believe in victory. They believed their foes were greater than the promises of God. And it led them to folly. Verse 3, And wherefore hath the Lord... Oh, now they're getting serious. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land? to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey, were it not better for us to return into Egypt? Oh, they go from murmuring at Moses and Aaron to the person they've really got a problem with. The Lord brought us to this point to kill us. You know what? Let me tell you something. You can, and will be tempted at times in your Christian life to think, the Lord brought me here to suffer an utter defeat. You know what make you think that way? Your foe? is at that point greater than the promises of God. I'm going to lose. There's no way. It's inevitable. The the pressures of sin, the pressures of the culture and the world, the pressures of Satan are too much. We're going to fall. Ultimately, you know what David did one time? When Saul was breathing down his neck, he said, Surely one day I'll fall by the hand of Saul. I heard a preacher say tonight, such a, such a wonderful point that he made. Why would David entertain the idea that he could die? Dead men don't become kings. And God had already promised he was going to reign. How do you reign when you're dead? David failed where Abraham succeeded. God told Abraham, sacrifice your son. And God, Abraham concluded, God said he's going to make a great nation of him, so he must be planning on raising him from the dead. I can't kill the promises of God. I'm going to go ahead and kill my son and trust God to keep his word. That kind of faith blows my mind. But it challenges me. I want it. You know what, David... With, being, with pursuit of Saul, said one day I'm going to perish. You know what he did? He said, I'm going down to the Philistines. It's just better for me to go back to the world. Now, you hear me well tonight. There's a great and very clear and present application to many in this room. When the Christian life seems impossible, the life God's called you to, because of the size of opposition, you are in danger of turning back to the world and saying, I might as well just live an ungodly life because the godly life isn't possible. You beware. What I'm saying to you, I'm saying in love tonight, you beware. And I believe this is a present warning for present needs in this present room. Beware when we say it's just impossible. It's just too hard. And fear overwhelms us to say, here I thought God was helping me, but all he's doing is setting me up to fall. That kind of thinking is folly. Number three, their provocation. It's what Hebrews calls it, their provocation. Numbers 14 
We read on and said in verse 4, they said one to another, let us make a captain. We're going to take charge here. God has failed us. Moses has failed us. Aaron has failed us. We're going to take charge of our own lives. You know where rebellion comes from? Unbelief. I can't trust God to lead my life. I better just run my own. I can't trust God to take care of me, so I better take this in my own hands. I'll choose my own leadership, thank you. Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their face before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not ye against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. You know what? You may be here tonight and people that are encouraging you to believe the promises of God have become an irritant to you. Someone that says, just trust God. He'll deliver you. I'm sick of hearing that. You know when the people got ready to stone Joshua and Caleb, the best of the bunch, when they said, live by faith. Oh, when you've purposed to live by unbelief, you've got to silence the voices of reproof. You with me tonight? Oh, what a dangerous place to be. The propagation started with disbelief. They didn't believe the promises God made of victory, of virtue, of vitality, of value in the land. They believed that they were unable to overcome those foes even though God had promised they could and would. To start with this disbelief, it turned into distress. What was first disbelief, what are we going to do? Then it resulted in disobedience. They made a captain to return to Egypt, something God specifically told them not to do. Disobedience ended in defeat. Look at verses 40 through 45. See, God led them to a point where they need to make a decision of faith and enter in by faith, and they instead, in unbelief, rejected that, and God judged them. You read Numbers 14. God put a plague on them. Uh, by the end of the chapter, people are still upset. But verse 40 says this, And they rose up early in the morning. So it's the next day after they've rejected uh, God's leadership and God's promise. And it says, And they rose up early in the morning and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. So now we're ready to obey. Now we'll go. And Moses said, Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not, let, uh, will not be with you. But they presumed to go up into the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. This is following the fact that God said, you were 40 days in the land. I'm going to give you a year for every day. 40 days you searched the land and didn't believe me. So a one year for every day of wandering in the wilderness. And when they heard that, they said, no, no, now we want to go in. God decided, I'm going I'm to judge you by making you wander. And they said, no, we'll go to battle now, Lord. Now we'll obey. God says, mm-mm. And then bless them. Very important for us to just live by faith. And as we have opportunity to trust the Lord and obey Him, trust Him for the strength we need. May I just say this? Go to 2 Peter 1. We'll conclude. 2 Peter chapter 1. We have the same promises made to us that they have. We have a promise of a life of vitality. Uh, 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 a life of virtue, a life of victory. We have all those same promises. But we will, ha- we will obtain them only the same way that they would have obtained them. They did not seek those promises by faith. They looked merely at their own natural ability and said that they're stronger than us, we'll lose. Instead of focusing on God's ability and His promises and laying hold of those promises and acting on those promises... They reacted by unbelief. And Hebrews chapter 3 says, and we'll read it in a moment, they entered not in because of unbelief. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, 
Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You know how grace and peace are multiplied? Not through the knowledge of self, through the knowledge of the Lord. Right? Verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things, read this carefully, all things that pertain unto life, that's vitality, and godliness, that's virtue, through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. Verse 4. Wherefore, or whereby, this God having given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's victory. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, the abundant Christian life, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? You've been given in Jesus Christ all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now that statement's either true or false. Do you have, if, if Christ is in you, you have in your possession by his dwelling in you everything you need to be godly. But you've got to quit looking at your ability and rest in his ability. Is that not it? Friend, that's the Christian life. Let me ask you something. How capable are you of making yourself fit to enter heaven? We're not. Then why do we think we're capable to live a godly life? It's all about Him. It is about His ability. I'm going to tell you something. There's a great deal of freedom in understanding that truth. I don't have to work myself up into living a godly life. I have to simply trust the one who saved me to enable me. Now unto him, Ephesians 3 says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. May I say this, any individual or church that lives a truly godly life gives glory and credit to one and one alone. No more than you can save your soul from sin can you produce a godly life by endeavor. It's by Him and through Him and unto His glory that it's done. It's that simple. If the children of Israel had said, yes, they're greater than us, but we have a God who divided the Red Sea, and we have a God who provided manna from heaven, and we have a God that's been with us every day by a pillar of cloud in the day and by fire at night, and we're not trusting in our strength. We know the God that delivered us from the Egyptians will also deliver us from the Amalekites. And you may be at this point in your Christian life, where you see the life God has called you to and you look at what stands between you and that life, whether it be your flesh and the lust of your flesh or the, the, the inability of your flesh to perform or you may look at the world and the pressure that it puts on you. Say, I just can't bear to stand up in this world and take the mockery. I, I don't see how I can carry out what God wants me to be. What about Christ? Didn't He do all that already? Didn't He come in the flesh and overcome all of our sins for us in the flesh? Did He not pay for our sins in His flesh? And does He not live to give you His strength to carry out His will? That's why He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Hebrews chapter 3, as we close, we're done. Hebrews chapter 3. The Bible says, Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, verse 7, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 19 says, verse 18, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Aren't you glad that the word of God is so clear? 
know what the key to victory, virtue, and vitality is tonight? Believing that God tells the truth when he makes his promises. Knowing that if you trust in him with all your heart, he will direct your paths. and He will direct your steps. Knowing that he has already provided a way for you to escape temptation. He already has. You're going to have to believe him, though, and not be shaken in your trust in his word. And you enter not in because of unbelief. You know what? As much as defeat comes to unbelief, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our 